title this morning is simply God's Unrelenting Judgment. God's Unrelenting Judgment. The God of creation is also the God of communication. And part of what the God of creation has communicated to the world and indeed to his people are his characteristics and therefore his expectations. Thus, Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on our hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse, even excuse them on the day, according to my gospel, when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. As a moral creator, God has communicated his law, and he has also communicated his righteousness. And he has done so not only by written word, but he has also done so by the gift of the conscience. So regardless of whether or not a group of people are direct recipients of God's revealed word, they are accountable. What's the word? Accountable to their creator for their moral and immoral actions and words. Because God is a moral agent, and he has created moral beings, and he will, therefore, hold us to account. But in this case, this morning, we're talking about a Hebrew prophet named Amos. Preaching to the world, which includes the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people weren't just any people. They were the people to whom God revealed his word. The people with whom the covenants were exacted. And we cannot, church, minimize or play down this truth. When we study the Old Testament, when we study the prophets, we must remember that regardless of the people to whom God is speaking, he has always had a special relationship with Israel. And so with that brief preface, we are on to Amos chapters 1 and 2. I'm going to give you a lot today, so please take a deep breath. We're going to begin with our first point, which is the heading. We begin in Amos chapter 1 with a lengthy first verse. Fix your eyes on it, if you would, please. It says this, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Do you see that? You see that? Oh, boy. We're good? I'm go Am I going too fast? Okay, stay with me now. The words of Amos, 
who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. A couple of things I want you to note here. First, these are the words of Amos. That's what we get from chapter 1, verse 1. First, these are the words of Amos. He's speaking them. He's taking responsibility for them. The words of Amos. The book begins. A simple lesson that we must remember in this case. Say amen if you're listening. When God delivers a word to you, he expects you to tell others the word. Secondly, these are the times of Amos. These are the times of Amos. He's not talking about a time from which he is removed or prophesying about a people with whom he has no contact. Jesus once said in John chapter 3, verse 11, we speak of what we know and we bear witness of those things we have seen. And so it is with Amos. Amos is a prophet in his own time, and he is preaching among his own people. He's well acquainted with the circumstances, church, and he knows well his audience. Two people in particular are mentioned in verse 1. They are Uzziah and Jeroboam. Amos refers to them as Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, respectively. Now, the reason Amos refers to two kings ruling concurrently is simply a fact, but of significant historical importance. So let me give you a little background here. The reason the nation of Israel was politically divided is as follows. During the time of King Solomon, who was the son of King David, the kingdom of Israel was unified, was one strong, flourishing nation. After Solomon's death, however, his son Rehoboam was to reign in his stead. And according to 1 Kings 11, he took poor advice. He upset the people, and another man named Jeroboam led a faction of the Israelite people away under his own leadership. So we went from a unified nation, one Israel, to two nations, one under Jeroboam, the first, and one under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Israel would be in the north. The capital would be Samaria. Jeroboam would reign there. Judah would be in the south. Jerusalem would be the capital. Rehoboam would reign there. The year is 931 B.C. So we know these men, Uzziah and Jeroboam II, ruled just after 800 B.C. So the division happened in 931. We're talking about 790 B.C. So we're talking about 150 years difference when Israel and Judah are mentioned here. So when Israel and Judah are mentioned, they are not synonymous. 
When God says Israel and then follows it up with Judah, he's not talking about the same group of people. He's talking about two distinct groups of people. So to help you visualize this, I created a map for you. So Jeroboam is in the north in what is called Israel with Samaria as the capital. Judah is in the south under Rehoboam's kingship, and Jerusalem is its capital. We're going to refer back to this map in a little while, but for now, I hope that helps you put a little perspective on it. In regards to the reference that is made to an earthquake, unfortunately, we don't have any information on this earthquake, except that Amos says that his prophecy came to him two years before the earthquake. And interestingly enough, chapter 8, verse 8 of Amos says, shall not the land tremble? On account of this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it. You see, we don't have any historical backing in regards to this particular earthquake in this particular time, but if we take the prophecy of Amos at face value, the earthquake was a form of judgment. So that's the heading, chapter 1, verse 1. Let's go to our second point this morning, which is this. The announcement begins. The announcement begins. We're going to begin now at verse 2 and move forward rather quickly. To begin with, I want you to note the tone. Note the tone. Amos says in verse 2, the Lord, what? Well, we can't say roars like that. The Lord, what? Roars. The Lord roars from Zion. Turn turn in Amos, if you would, please. Go to chapter 3. Move forward to Amos chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8 says, The lion has roared. Who will not fear? Here it says, The Lord God has spoken. This is what we call a parallel A synonymous parallelism, excuse me, a synonymous parallelism is something that says the same thing two times, but just different wording. A synonymous parallelism is a a Hebrew poetic formula that helps us understand the importance of something. I'm going to say it twice, but I'm not going to use the same words. So the the lion has roared, the Lord has spoken, the Lord is the lion. And he has roared, which is to help us understand the kind of tone that this message holds. This is a tone of judgment, a tone of seriousness. The the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Another parallel. Jerusalem and Zion, same place. Utters his voice, roars. Same thing. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. The top of Carmel withers. You see, God's righteous roar, God's prophetic pronouncement, God's wrath-filled word is so serious that the shepherds are mourning in the valleys and the mountains are melting. From the bottom to the top, that means the luscious valleys to the top of the mountain, this prophecy is unrelenting. 
There is no nook, no crack, no crevice that isn't influenced by the decree of this word of this sovereign God. Are you listening, church? There's no escaping the word of the Lord. From the valleys to the top of the mountain, when God speaks, it will be done. This is only verse 2. I hope you're getting the weight of this word. Second, note the introductory formula. Note the introductory formula, and it occurs before each prophetic word that Amos utters. The introductory formula happens before each prophetic word that Amos utters. To put the prophet's words into parlance, it says, thus says the Lord. But perhaps the parlance would be something like this. This is what God told me to tell you. This is what God told me to tell you. Look at verse 3, thus says the Lord. Look at verse 6, thus says the Lord. Verse 9, thus says the Lord. Verse 11, thus says the Lord. Verse 13, thus says the Lord. Chapter 2, the end of verse 15 of chapter 1, thus says the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 4, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. What Amos is saying is this, this word does not originate with me. This is what God told me to tell you. Say amen if you're listening for a moment. Listen, when you share the gospel, it is not original with you. You get the gospel from here, which means if you bend it, if you dilute it, if you add fire to it, if you shift it a quarter over here or halfway over there, you're not preaching the gospel anymore. It's not your gospel. You are not given the liberty to shift it, to change it, to modify it. This word is God's word. I love what he says in Psalm 50, verse 16. To the wicked, the Lord says, what right do you have to take my word in your mouth? We will all be held accountable for the right understanding and the right dealing with God's word. Now, prophets are important people in this religious community. Both in the Old and New Testaments, we see prophets, both male and female, bring a direct word from the Lord before the completion of the Bible as we know it today. I do not believe prophets exist today. You want to believe that, that's your prerogative, but you have not a leg to stand on. Evidentially speaking, there is no evidence for prophets today. Now, if you want to dilute the word and say, well, you're a pastor, so you're a prophet, okay, you can use it that way, but that's not a biblical definition of a prophet. A biblical definition of a prophet means a direct word from the Lord that is spoken as a result. At the conclusion of the Bible, we see no more prophets. Their responsibility is drawn out clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says this, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, this is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. 
You need not be afraid of him or her. You see, if God delivered a word through someone claiming to be a prophet, a couple of things must have happened. That word must, number one, come to pass. And number two, that prophet must lead everyone back to God. Deuteronomy 13 suggests that God would even uh, allow prophecies to take place. to test his people to see whether or not that prophet led to him or somewhere else. Sometimes we neglect the power of evil. We play it down. We nullify it. We say God is good and he is all-powerful and evil doesn't really exist. We sort of envelop this idea and put it into Hollywood and we say that's all fake. It's not fake. Evil is real and evil is powerful and you have to respect the fact that evil is not something to be played with. So God says in Deuteronomy chapter 13, if a prophet comes among you and preaches a word and it comes to pass, but he leads you after another God, I did not send him, but I am testing you. Some of you need to put down the books you're reading. Some of you need to stop listening to that pastor. Some of you need to turn off that podcast. If it's leading you to a man-centered gospel, it's a false prophet. If it's leading you anywhere other than the cross, the glory of God in all things, and sinners saved by his grace through faith alone, through Christ alone, if it is anything other than that, then it is false prophecy. Just because someone says they're a Christian and the sign outside their building says church doesn't mean a thing. Here's the word that Amos utters. For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, you recall from our reading of this text earlier that every prophecy that Amos utters starts with that formula, right? For three transgressions and for four, I will not relent my punishment. For three transgressions and for four, I will not relent my punishment. And I don't know about you, but the first time I ever read Amos, long, 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 long time ago, I went, what in the world does that mean? Right? Anybody else? You read that and you go, for three or four sins, Three or four sins? They sent four times, and you're going to flatten the whole city? Is that really what it's saying? No. I like what the New Living Translation does with, this, with these verses here. The New Living Translation, I think, does a good job. Now, it's not a literal translation. It's a paraphrase. But it certainly helps with our understanding. The New Living Translation takes that verse for three transgressions and for four, and it translates it this way. The people of Damascus, for example, have sinned again and again, and I will not turn away my anger. Did you get that? That was spooky. <laughs> because the people of Damascus have sinned again and again. That's what the formula means. It doesn't mean that they sinned four times. 
What that formula means is because of the third transgression and the fourth transgression and the fifth transgression and the 600th transgression and the 800th, they don't stop sinning because they won't stop sinning. Can somebody turn that off? Somebody help them. The point is, this sin has been continuous. Amen? This sin has been continuous, and it's been continuous without repentance, without change. And God is coming to judge it. Third, I want you to note who is speaking. It says, the Lord. I want you to note the tone, the formula, which we just went over, and now I want you to note who is speaking. It says, the Lord. As you probably already know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, except for the second chapter in Daniel. That's a court scene in Aramaic. So in order to distinguish between the words that are used to name God, the English translators have used a little bit of a variety. So you'll note sometimes in your Old Testament, and I'm going to demonstrate this to you now, If it is Yahweh, the personal name of God, then you will see it is a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see in your Bible, as we see here, for example, chapter 2, the Lord roars from Zion, it's in all capitals. That is because in the Hebrew, the word is Yahweh, or the anglicized Jehovah. This is the Hebrew verb to be. When Moses said, when I go to your people, whom shall I say sent me? He said, I am. It's hayah in Hebrew. It's the verb to be, Yahweh. This is the personal covenant name of God for his people. It's so precious to the Jewish communities that they say, Hashem, the name. They won't say Jehovah, which I think is a little ridiculous because he introduced himself, not so we could not use it. That's just my opinion. The second option is Elohim, and this is the word God. This is what is used to describe the fact that God is our creator. In the beginning, God created Elohim. When Hannah prays because Penina has children, and she does not, and God honors her blessing, and Elkanah and Hannah are sexually intimate And it says, the Lord remembered her. I love that verse. God never forgets his promise. The Lord remembered her and gave her a son. And she called his name Samuel, Elohim. God heard me. That's what Samuel means. So that that suffix, El, comes from Elohim. God heard me. The third option is Adonai. And that is Lord with only a capital L. When we see that, the Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115. When we see that, it's his sovereignty, his kingship. It's there's no Lord above our Lord, right? King of kings, Lord of lords, that kind of idea. Now, I share all that information with you because I want you to note which option is used here. You can see from the text that it's Yahweh's name that is used here because the word Lord is in all capitals. 
Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's what designates it for us. This means that it is Yahweh, and that name is the personal covenant name of God. That's significant. When Amos says that this word is coming from the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, he's saying, the one you have a covenant with told me to tell you what I'm about to say. For this reason, prophets have earned the epithet covenant mediators. Covenant mediators. By way of prophetic word, they mediate the covenant between the people of God and God himself. They go to the people and they say, you have sinned against the Lord and you are not keeping the covenant. And thus prophets are sometimes called covenant mediators. Now, very quickly, the people who are mentioned here are Damascus. You can put the map back up there, Chris, for me. There you go. Damascus, which is northeast of Israel. Gaza, which you know where that is. If you've watched any news today, we're still dealing with Gaza. I say we, they. It's there on the Mediterranean coast. Tyre, which is on the north part of the coast where that little horn is sticking out. Edom, which is southeast of Judah on the other side of the Dead Sea. We call that Transjordan. Ammon, which is also Transjordan, east of Judah. And Moab. Some of the sins that are mentioned against these groups of people are as follows. They've persecuted the people of God, violence, merciless killing of women and of children. And so it is today. (laughs) As I was preparing this message and watching the news, I said, goodness gracious, it's still happening. The prophecy that Amos preached to these people are still happening today. I read chapter 1, verse 8, and it says, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke my punishment. Listen, the Muslim nations, the Hindu nations, the godless nations whose politics serve no other purpose than to oppress some people and elevate others. God is going to judge these nations. Their avoidance, their denial, their rejection of Christ isn't something that excuses their culpability. On the contrary, it makes their inevitable judgment that much more severe. For three sins and for four, I will not revoke my punishment, says the Lord. Now, we just went through a lot there. And this is not a lighthearted message. So let's breathe for a minute before we get into this third point. Let me transition from the second to third point by saying this. If you feel like the word of the Lord going to the nations is the word 
that is appropriate, don't think so fast. Because the third point is this, the announcement continues. The announcement begins, but thirdly, the announcement continues. If you look with me, it continues in chapter 2, whereas God prophesied to the nations around the people of God in chapter 1. So now there's a turn, and you can almost imagine while God's people are hearing the prophecy of Amos, for three sins of Damascus and for four. Yeah, bring it. For three sins of Gaza and for four. Serves them right. For three sins of Edom and for four. For Ammon, for Moab, for three sins and for four, I will not revoke my punishment. And the people of God say, amen. Bring it. Bring it. And then they come to Judah. Oh, my. For three transgressions of Judah. Chapter 2, verse 4. And for four, I will not revoke my punishment. Because, are you there with me with your eyes? Because they have rejected the what? The law of the Lord. All capitals. Remember what all capitals mean the personal covenant name of God. They rejected the covenant that we have together. And they have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked, they are walking in the same mistakes that their fathers made. Kids, don't make the same mistakes your parents have made. So the indictment continues, and we'll see them in a moment, but for now, imagine the shock and the amazement when the people of God heard that the judgment of God was for the people of God too. (laughs) I'm assuming they were rooting and going, this is a good word of the Lord. Love it. Bring the heat, Amos. And then he turned the corner. Oh, for three sins of Judah. And in verse 6, for three transgressions of Israel. Oh, it's not just for the nations. God is bringing it home too. Friends, let's accept this word from the Lord. We cannot celebrate the judgment of others while excusing God's certain judgment of us if we are guilty ourselves. Amen? Sin will be dealt with in this life and in the next. Some of us become Christians, and we go, okay, everything is good now. No! I find it so exasperating when these Christian artists are asked, well, what do you think about this? Tell me, you're so popular among Christian circles. Tell me what your view is on that. And they go, well... Well, I don't want, you know, that's not for me to call. That's not for me to decide. You're wrong. God has delivered his word. You're right. It's not for you to decide. It's for you to repeat. It's not for me to decide. It's for me to repeat. Now, I do it with love, hopefully, comfort, consolation, and compassion. 
But at the end of the day, that doesn't change the fact that God has said, this is a sin and this is not. This is a sin and this is not. And when people come in the church, God help us, First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge especially, or any other church in the world, God help us to be a covenant community that believes God has called us to holiness. God has not called us to big houses and pools and Mercedes Benz. He said, take up your cross every day and follow me. Now, if he wants to give you a Mercedes Benz, that's between you and God. If he wants to give you a pool, that's between you and God. If he wants to give you the biggest house on the block, that's between you and God. God blesses financially all the time. Everything belongs to him. He can do what he wants. But if you think that Christianity is about prosperity, you better look at Jesus. Because it's not. The scriptures teach us that there are none righteous, that all have sinned, that God is holy and righteous and just. This isn't only true for our enemies and the people that don't worship him and live sinful lives, the people with whom we disagree. It is also true for us, church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. On the screen, you can read it with your eyes as I read aloud. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Man alive. That is a scary verse. You see, God is patient, but God is not permissive. You see, God is loving, but God is not loose. God is merciful, but God does not accept the management of sin. And as his children, we must be the first to take sin seriously. If he's bringing judgment to the world, he's going to bring judgment to us. Now, if we are genuinely in Christ, it doesn't jeopardize our eternal security. But just because we're going to heaven doesn't mean that we can play down the standard of righteousness we should be living with now. <laughs>